All right, good morning. Okay, this morning we're going to be reading from Zephaniah, chapter 3. We'll read the whole chapter. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are even evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exult- proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a humble and lowly, the people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall gaze or graze and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing loud, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at the time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you this morning, Lord, for the incredible blessing we have in receiving your word, Lord. Um, The incredible blessing we have knowing, Lord, that um, it's not only the wrath, Lord, that we are saved from, Lord, but that we get to brought into your family, Lord, to be um, brought through the gospel, through Christ, Lord, to you, Lord, that you will celebrate us, Lord, through your mercy, through your grace. And Lord, we celebrate that this morning. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, open the word, Lord, have the Holy Spirit work miracles in us, Lord. And 
I pray so much that uh, you would do the same for our children as they go off to Sunday school, Lord. I pray you give the teachers wisdom in their words. I pray that you start working on these little kids' hearts, Lord, and that you would save them. Lord, we thank you again for that this morning. Um, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm really excited for this morning. I'm excited to be in God's Word with you. I hope you have your Bibles open to Zephaniah, what, what Blake just read. Um, What, what does it mean to walk by faith as a Christian? I mean, Christianity is, uh, is, is kind of a strange thing. It's a strange animal, isn't it? To, to, to walk around, to live life either by faith or not by faith, right? To actually not just be a Christian in name only, but to, to believe in God and to in some way that Christians have done for 2,000 years, and believers in the one true God have done for long before that, what, what does it mean to walk with God? What, what does it look like? What, why is it meaningful to you and to me to, to walk by faith in this world with God? Well, we're going to see that a little bit this morning from the the book of Zephaniah. The, 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 the book of Zephaniah is one of the, the minor prophets. We've been going through nine of them. After this morning, we have uh, two more of, of the nine that we're covering uh, to, to look at. Uh, next week, we get to hear from Isaac uh, McPhee. And then the week after that, uh, Kyle Myers will be preaching up in this pulpit for the first time. And so some of you know Kyle. He was uh, our intern last year for uh, he was our youth pastor intern last year, and right now he's working with Reality Sports in downtown Puyallup. In fact, I'm representing Reality Sports here. Got my Reality Sports mug happening up front, filled with some passion tea for me to wet the whistle. Um, so I'm excited to have Isaac up next week, uh, Kyle up the week after that. Be praying for them as they uh, prepare God's Word, Haggai and uh, Malachi, they're, they're, respectively, they're going to be preaching. So excited for that. But this morning, we're going to be looking at, at Zephaniah. And Zephaniah is this short, three-chapter minor prophet. And could I just encourage you to dive in? The water is so warm. It's so, this, this book is so accessible in so many ways. In terms of the historical context, there's some, there's some things to, to learn, but friends, I'm just telling you, even though we are far removed historically, the, there are riches here in Zephaniah for all of us. And so, if you read Zephaniah, say you go uh, out with just you and your Bible this afternoon, you get alone, uh, maybe put a sweatshirt on, sit under a tree, uh, and just read out loud the book of Zephaniah. It'll take you about eight minutes to read it. Um, and what you'll probably say is that, uh, well, you're thinking, what's the big idea? What's the main theme of Zephaniah? You'll probably conclude Zephaniah is, has a lot to say about the day, the, on that day, the day of the Lord. If you read any commentaries on Zephaniah, it becomes really clear really quickly that the main theme for Zephaniah is this seemingly ominous day of the Lord. We see this immediately in chapter 1, verse 2. Right out of the gates, it's kind of this uh, very intense, very, uh, 
very ominous language here. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Wow! Okay, right out of the gates. Kind of a scorched earth mentality. Look at down at chapter, or, uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Here we see this theme surface. I'll just point to several different spots where we see the day of the Lord theme surface. Chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Scary, right? This impending judgment. Now, I'm not, I'm not preaching uh, fire and brimstone, right? I, I just want to look at this together with you in a, in a very calm voice. Let's look at what Zephaniah talks about here. Apparently, there is a fixed day of the Lord that's coming. And there, Zephaniah, inspired by uh, the, the God who created everything, is warning people about this day. He's warning Judah. He's warning the whole earth about this coming day. Look at verse 18 in chapter 1. In, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Again, wow. <laughs> That's a really strong language. Then at the end of Two and a half chapters of judgment, we hear the same in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 8. Flip over there, chapter 3, verse 8. This is the Lord speaking. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all of my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be, there's the word again, consumed. The day of the Lord friends, as we see from just these three passages in Zephaniah, will be a day of judgment. We see from this that God's judgment will be complete. It's going to be cosmic. In the first few verses of chapter 1, it's like, it's like, it's like you know, Genesis 1 through 3, the world is created. Well, this is like a decreation. It's like creation itself, the created order is, is, is coming apart. It's, it's, uh, it's crumbling, so to speak. Uh, it's, it's like a decreation of the world. We, we see that this uh, judgment, it's going to be complete. It's going to be cosmic. It's going to be catastrophic. This judgment's going to fall on not just those wicked people out there. It's going to fall on Israel. It's going to fall on the nations. And it's going to fall on nature itself. So is this an Old Testament phenomenon Only? No, the New Testament also points to this day. If you read through your New Testaments, you'll find language of this coming day. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, we read Peter saying that the day of the Lord, same phrase, right? The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's a day of accountability. Apparently, Hebrews chapter Hebrew or Hebrews four thirteen in the New Testament reads this way: No creature is hidden from God's sight, 
but all are naked and exposed. There's that word again, exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The idea here is on that day, on that day. Finally, we we remember the Apostle Paul declaring to a a very Pacific Northwest kind of crowd in Athens in in Acts chapter 17. This is a, we can relate to this this group of folks in Athens because they've got kind of all the gods that are available and they kind of like having, you know, we could just pick and choose. It's kind of a a religious buffet or non-religious buffet, whatever whatever makes you happy kind of a thing. That's what was going on in Athens. They're uh, proudly open, very spiritual, um, agnostic, yet very opinionated at the same time. So a very interesting situation. One I think we can relate to. Do you remember what Paul says to them in his um, message in Acts 17? He says, friends, the, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere. This is relevant to us, right? He commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. Okay, so the resurrection of Jesus should not only encourage you, but it should remind you that Jesus is going to come back on that day and be the judge. And so there's assurance there, not only that there's salvation in him, but there's judgment coming through him, Paul says. So this idea of a day where God comes in wrath to judge the world is a biblical idea. Okay, that's, that's the first thing I want to argue. It's It's an Old Testament reality. It's a New Testament reality. Uh, While God's a God of love, His love is a holy love. So anyone who, and this is quite often the sentiment today, that if uh, there is a belief in God, He's a God in in our own making, right? He, He has to be a God of inclusive love. And this love can't include any wrath or anger, Right? Well, friends, let me ask you this. Any, anyone who believes uh, love and wrath don't belong together, try taking a child away from a uh, mother and see what happens. See if, if, if wrath is at all compatible with her love for that child. Um, it turns out God's wrath and His love are compatible. They're not at odds with each other. His, his love for His glory, for this good creation that he made for humanity made in his image for his redeemed people actually God's love for them is not at all compatible with God's wrath toward everyone and anything that gets in the way of those things of those cherished realities so Zephaniah is about the day of the Lord right we've we've decided that's the theme of the book um, that's what commentators say. Uh, that's what the common sense observation of Zephaniah would say. But I think we can be a little bit more specific. I, c- I think we can narrow in the theme even further than the day of the Lord broadly. I don't. I don't think merely saying the day of the Lord is the theme of Zephaniah is is goes goes far enough. It's not specific enough. the The book of Zephaniah doesn't merely answer the question. Will there be a coming day of the Lord? It answers a more specific question. 
And this is the question that I think Zephaniah answers. What does it mean to be hidden on the day of the Lord? What does it mean to be hidden on the day of the Lord? Hidden. Hidden. Yes, hidden. While the certainty and the scope of this day couldn't be more clear, right at the center of this book, in the beginning of chapter 2, we hear Zephaniah hold forth, there's this way of escape from the day of the Lord. There's this way of escape of God's wrath on that terrible and inevitable day. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Seek the Lord, all you humble. Underline humble if you got a pen. All you humble of the land who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. There it is again. Perhaps you may be hidden, hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Friends, as we see in other minor prophets, as we've seen over the last seven weeks or so, trusting in the Lord, making the Lord your refuge, not just as a family, not just for your parents, but personally, presently, is the way to find shelter from the storm of of the Lord's anger on that day. As the prophet Nahum put it, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, he says the Lord is good, a stronghold. The Lord Himself can be for you a stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those who take refuge in Him. Zephaniah is all about what it means to be hidden on the day of the Lord. To be hidden somehow in the Lord on the day of the Lord. In fact, we know we're on the right track because Zephaniah's name itself means Yahweh has hidden or protected. Yahweh has protected or Yahweh has hidden. That's what, it's what his name means. Zephaniah drills deeper, and he drills deeper in two ways. In, in Zephaniah, we see more clearly than anywhere else what we're being hidden from and what we're being hidden for on the day of the Lord what we're being hidden from, and what we're being hidden for. So I think the main theme of the book answers this question of what it means to be hidden on the day of the Lord. And I think Zephaniah's answer to that is we're hidden from something and we're hidden for something. It's the, the good news of the gospel, in other words, friends, is, just, is not just that you escape something. It's that you've been ushered into something. You've been dropped into You've been parachuted into a universe that is better than your wildest dream. Zephaniah talks about what we've been hidden for, not just what we've been hidden from. Turns out that Let's, let's begin by looking at what we've been hidden from. Um, it turns out that there are at least um, two kinds of ways to rebel against God. In Zephaniah, we see that those who trust in Israel's God are hidden from God's wrath against two kinds of sin. We're hidden from God's wrath against at least two kinds of sin. One is religious sinning, and the other is non-religious sin. 
if you could put it that way. Just these two categories. There's religious rebellion and there's worldly rebellion. There's religious sinning and there's non-religious sinning. Zephaniah deals with both of those. And in Zephaniah, we see that those who trust in Israel's God are hidden for undeserved and unspeakable joy. We'll get to that later. But for now, let's, let's continue to look at what we're hidden from. By trusting in the God of Israel, we are, what are we delivered from? Well, in brief, we're delivered from God's wrath against those two kinds of sin. Against religious sin and against non-religious sin. In other words, you can rebel against God by hiding in the church and by running from the church. Right? You can stay as far away from the church as possible and still be living in a kind of fist-shaking-at-heaven rebellion against the God who created you. And you can do the same thing while attending church week in and week out. This is the way it was for the people of God in the time of Zephaniah. Religious people tend to look down their noses at those irreligious and worldly folks out there. Man, they're, they're godless and they're, they're wicked. Oh man, how hor- it's, so, it's so easy to see, right? Maybe you've been raised in the church and there's a, there's a, there's a stigma attached to those non-churchgoers out there. Well, non-religious folks can very easily tend to look down their noses at religious people for their, for their hypocrisy, for some of their, their obvious perversion, for their toxicity in some of their relationships, right? It's, re- it's really easy to see. Zephaniah shows us that neither the world nor the church has the corner on rebellion, has the corner on sinning. God sees the many shades of religious sinning and God sees the many shades of non-religious sinning and all will be held accountable by Him on that day. First Zephaniah, just, I mean, just walking through this book, the, the weight of God's concern lands mainly towards religious sinning. Those church folks that live duplicitous lives. So let's look at that. I just want to show you, I'm not trying to be heavy-handed or browbeating this morning. This is just, this is just what Zephaniah is dealing with here uh, 2,600 years ago. Okay, so this, not, not a whole lot's changed, we'll find, from, uh, from just humanity, from our fallenness, right? We know that something's wrong with the world. And, and re- religion that's devoid of God's help and blessing and power is no solution to humanity's brokenness and sinfulness, is it? It wasn't then and it wasn't now. We need God actually to be with us. We need God actually to transform us and to be our helper and our salvation. We don't just need religion, right? We need God Himself. And we can see this from the, 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 the many ways that the people of God sinned in Zephaniah's day. So let's just, just looking through here, uh, look with me at, at, at the idolatry. They, they, were, they committed idolatry, the people of God. They worshipped other gods, that is. They, look at chapter 1, verse 4. God, God says through His prophet, I will stretch out My hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, or Baal, depending on how you pronounce it. 
So there's the people of God who are worshiping Baal, who are worshiping the, the, their, the, the, their neighboring nation's tribal deities. Right? These, are, these are those who have been rescued, ransomed from being in slavery and bondage to Egypt, delivered out of Egypt, delivered into the promised land, given blessing on top of blessing, but here they're worshiping other gods. There's a, there's a propensity in the heart of even religious people to, to not worship God as He's disclosed Himself to us in the Bible, but to, to worship a God in our own making. To worship, ah oh man, do you know what looks really interesting? Is to worship the God of the peoples around us. This is what was going on there. They, they committed idolatry. They, they, and that's in a couple of different ways. You can do that by becoming Buddhist. You can do that by, be, by becoming a Mormon. You can do that by be, uh, becoming a Muslim. Right? There's, you can worship Allah. These are other gods. Or, as, as they did here as well, you can, you can just worship creation itself. You can say, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm also super into astrology. Right? And I'm, I'm going to lift my eyes up and, and I'm going to start banking on help from those planetoids out there and the forces that, are, that I think are attached to them. So look at, again, verse 4 with me in verse 5. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Those who bow down. And next here we, we're introduced not just to idolatry, but to hypocrisy. Just, there's there's a, a comfortability to like to mix the worship of the true God with with other stuff, right? That that happened then; it happens now. Um, so look again at at, at verse five with me. Um, they they're, they're worshiping the hosts of heaven. They're worshiping stars, and then there are also those who bow down and swear to the Lord. Right? This is they're giving they're giving worship to God alone but not God alone, right? And yet swear by Milcom, right? So there's this hypocrisy. There's this duplicity. There's, they're, they're running on two tracks in their life. There's, there's my worship for the, the true and living God as He's re- revealed Himself in the Bible. And there is an interest. There's also a fascination. There's also an allegiance to, to the gods of those around me. I don't know what that would be for you. I don't know what, that, what temptation that would present for us here in our day, but I, I know that it's possible. They, these uh, religious folks sinned by committing apostasy, apostasy. It's a religious term. What does that mean? It means, it means they just quit. These are Israelites, the people of God who just gave up. Um, there's a, 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 an, a Christian author, pastor um, in a really renowned way. Um, he, he got a lot of notoriety early on um, in his, even, even as a teenager, as a teenage author um, who came out on Instagram just a, a week or two ago and said he's no longer Christian. He just, so he just denied the faith and said he's, he's just going somewhere else. We, 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 this is happening quite often. We see this happening. We see this in verse 6 here. Those who turned back from following the Lord. 
who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. So there's apostasy. There's corrupt leadership. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. It says, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. So there's the leadership's corrupt. The leadership's compromised. Chapter 3, verse 3, flip over there because it's another instance of corrupt leadership. It says in Jerusalem, her, her corrupt officials within her are roaring lions. Like they're savage. They're unfeeling. They're devouring, right? Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. Her prophets are fickle. They can't be counted on. Treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy, and they do violence to the law. Well, that says a lot about how the leadership has gone astray in Israel at this time, right? There's actually like seven different things there that are happening, right? They've made themselves an authority. They've done violence to the law. They don't care what the law says. They're going to do what they want. And there are a lot of pastors nowadays that don't care what the Bible really says. They, they just want to teach their own ideas, their own thoughts, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe ways that can make them rich or maybe ways that can make them wealthy. All right, this is a temptation for people today as well. So there's corrupt leadership that's happening. This is a kind of sinning in this religious community that God hates. It, it makes him sick. There's complacency. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. There's complacency. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. There's just this kind of... The, the, the men aren't ready to get after it. The men aren't ready to seek the Lord, to encourage one another, to lead their families, to, to serve their communities. There's just complacency. It's really a kind of functional atheism. It's like God's not involved. God's not going to do anything good. He's not going to do anything bad either. And so we don't have to do anything. There's just this complacency that marks the people of God, particularly the men among the people of God. The day of the Lord is coming for this kind of type of sin. There's also materialism. Look at... Uh, chapter 1, verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. I'm trying to think of that last song we just sang, Daniel. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone. My worth is not in skill or name, in win, in win or loss, in pride or shame. My worth is not in what I own. I think for, for the people of God back then, they found their worth and their identity and their sense of security in what they owned. With their net worth, their, their property, their fences, their perceived sense of... They, they've got these barricades around them because of their stuff. But neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. 
this religious sin was the sin of unbelief. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. She, she listens, that is Jerusalem, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. So you can, you can be part of the people of God, but inwardly not be trusting in the Lord. Just be absolutely apathetic. I'm not seeking Him. I'm just going through the motions. I don't know if that's where you're at. That's where, that's where they were at then. And there was also this hardness. Um, like God had been patient over and over and over with this people, but there was, there was an unwillingness to learn from the pain that they had experienced in the past. We see this in chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. So I said, surely you will fear me. It's like after all this, surely you will fear me. You will accept, you will accept instruction. Then, then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. It's like the more they were corrected, the more they experienced the consequences and the pain from their sinning. It's like the more they, were, they, they gave themselves over to it. They, the, the eagerness to make their ways increasingly corrupt increased. Friends, God sees the many shades of rebellion that exist in the people of God. And He promises through the prophet Zephaniah to bring judgment on them for it. So we, we think we can hide from God in church, in our serving, in our good deeds. We don't need Christ as Savior if we can just perform more good deeds and try to justify ourselves. But one might argue from the sheer length of this list compared to the shorter list we're going to see in just a moment on non-religious sin, God's stomach turns in a special way for religious hypocrisy. And so, friends, if, we're, uh, if, if, if you are a uh, Christian, if you would identify as a Christian, this, it's, it's right and proper for us to stand under the conviction of the Word of God. God is opposed to those who who live this way and don't care to change and don't care to repent. It was true in Zephaniah's day and it's true in our day that proximity to holy, <clears throat> to holy thing <coughs> a proximity to holy things does not make one holy. <clears throat> Friends, God will not be mocked. This, this is good news, however, Maybe this is you. Maybe you're someone who's living in one of these ways of hypocrisy, of idolatry, of complacency, of unbelief. And you need to repent. The Holy Spirit might be presently convicting you. And that's a good thing. Maybe some of you have experienced the pain and the the wounding of being under the leadership of, of pastors who are more eager to take from you of parents who use their, their authority to hurt rather than help. Friends, would you be helped by, by feeling with God His anger at this kind of sinning? 
It's what the day of the Lord is for, to deal with those who are using religiosity as a, as a cloak to do whatever the heck they want. But friends, through judgment, <clears throat> excuse me, though judgment will begin with the people of God on the day of the Lord, it will not end there, right? It will not end there. There is a way to rebel against Israel's God for those who are not Israel as well. Isn't that interesting that the God of Israel comes and He's speaking to His people and over and over and over we've seen in the, in the Minor Prophets that He's also announcing that He's going to hold accountable the nations as well. This is not just a local tribal deity. Jesus is not just a Western God, right? He, we, it's, it's, it's just, hey, you were born in America. That's why you're a Christian, right? Actually, Jesus is a very Eastern dude, right? He's a Jewish guy born in the Middle East. And, uh, and right now, the gospel is it. Did that really happen? Am I hooked on something? There we go. Wow. Are we loosened up now? Okay, are we, are, we, are we here? I did that on purpose just to get your attention back. I mean, Jesus, uh, what was I saying? Something about Jesus being a Middle Eastern guy. I don't remember. Um, wow. Let me just transition then. Um, God is... God is going to come on that day, not just for religious sinning, but for non-religious sinning, but for, but for a kind of worldly rebellion, okay? And Zephaniah uh, points that out as well. And really, there's not a list. There's, there's just one. This list is very short. There's, there's one kind of sinning that all the nation's sinning kind of boils down to, and it's pride. It's pride. Now, pride takes... Uh, a, a lot of different forms and a lot of different, it, it, it manifests in a lot of different ways. But fundamentally, as there's the, the coming day of the Lord, what, what the nations are going to be under the judgment of God for is their pride. So here, where do I see that? Okay, look at chapter 2, verse 8. It says, I have heard the taunts of Moab, a nation to the east of Israel. I have heard the taunts, the taunts of Moab. And the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. So there is this prideful superiority of these nations. Um, it, it boils down to pride. They, they want to take their territory. Um, they, they're belittling the people of God. And there's a lot that they, they do that's actually immoral and wrong. But what God is most fundamentally zeroing in on here is their pride. We see it most clearly in chapter 2, verse 15. This is the exultant city that lives securely, really speaking here of, of the nation Assyria, who's, who actually has them captive in many ways right now. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. I am and there is no one else. Now friends, it's interesting that in this book, all the various ways of sinning for non-religious people basically gets boiled down to pride. Additionally, if, if this is the essence of non-religious sin, isn't it interesting how religious it sounds? Non-religious people are in the end no re less religious than anyone. I mean, hu humanity, we're created 
in God's image. We're fundamentally religious whether we like it or not. See, the object of their worship and devotion is different. Instead of worshiping God or gods or creation, our non-religious friends worship, according to Zephaniah, self, me, I am, and there is no one besides me. That sounds a lot like what God says about himself, right? It's very, it's a, it's, it's religious language. This is the language of worship. It's a language of supremacy. So friends, let me get back to where we started. What does it mean to be hidden on the day of the Lord? In part, it means to be hidden from God's just judgment against the churchy sort of rebellion that we see so often, we experience so often, and also the worldly sort of rebellion that's characterized most fundamentally by pride. I'm doing my life my way. But the good news is greater than what we're saved from. Because God's coming on that day to judge religious and non-religious sin. We're being saved from that judgment. But in chapter 2, we already see hints of this judgment being leveraged for a humble and lowly people. Not a worthy people, not a obedient people, but a humble and lowly and broken-hearted people. So we see that there is something that God is saving us for as well. In, in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, "...the seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes." So folks, the glory here is what it, what it means to be hidden on the day of the Lord is not just that we are hidden from this, this terrible wrath of God for sin that, as I just described, it makes us nauseous as well, right? That's No, we don't want to live in that. But we're also saved for something. We're hidden for something that is inestimably wonderful that, that Zephaniah spends the last chapter unpacking. And so we, what we're saved for is this undeserved, this unspeakable joy, this God, God promises Uh, for those hidden in Him by faith to be ushered into a new world, a a new community. And so I'm just going to list off what this new community is like that we are being saved into if we hide ourselves by faith in the Lord. And particularly for you and me, in the Lord Jesus, right? First of all, what's this this community that we're going to be saved into, that we're going to be hidden for? Well, first of all, it's going to be a united community. It's going to be a united community. Look at verse, uh, or chapter 3, verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. Okay, so the peoples, the nations, scattered after Babel, given different languages. We've got these differences in ethnicity and language. Somehow, on that day, when the Lord comes, He's not only going to come in judgment, but He is going to come to unify. He's going to create kind of a transnational, trans-ethnic people who are going to link arms together, become family together. Why? To worship the Lord Jesus 
to serve the Lord Jesus. They're going to be a united community. That's what we're being hidden for, reserved for, is this united community. It's going to be a second pleasing community. It's going to be a pleasing community. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. If you read through the book of Leviticus and you think through the sacrificial system which was instituted in the Old Covenant, what were offerings for? What, was, what, was right, what were right sacrifices for? They were for worship. And when the people of God worshiped God in the way that God wanted, what do you hear over and over and over in the book of Leviticus? It was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so what we see here is that Instead of judgment, what's going to come on the day of the Lord for those who merely hide themselves in the Lord Jesus is there's going to be a way open to them to worship the God, to worship God in a way that's pleasing to God. When we worship God our way, God hates it. It doesn't please him, but God has made a way available to worship him that he's happy about, that he's excited about. His pleasure can actually rest on your life. When you worship him this way, it's going to feel like your life just fits, right? Your life fits. You're living the way you were intended to live. God's pleasure is now on you, right? So this is going to be a pleasing community. Friends, it's going to be a shame free community. Welcome to Summit Christian Fellowship, a shame-free community. Okay, verse 11 in chapter 3. On that day you shall not be put to shame. Why? Why would you be put to shame? Because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. That doesn't make sense. It's a crazy community, right? It's a shame-free community. You're not going to experience shame on that day for the deeds that you should feel shame for. You are not going to feel shame on that day for the deeds by which you rebelled against the Lord. All your rebellion, all your sinning, all your unbelief on that day, there's not just going to be judgment for sin, but for those who find refuge in Jesus, there is going to be this lifting of all shame so that you can experience God in intimacy so that you can experience one another in intimacy, in community. This is incredible. It's a shame-free community. Friends, it's a broken-hearted community. On that day, this, the entire community will be comprised of those who are broken-hearted, humble, lowly. There will be no prideful people there. A prideful Christian, though I'm sure you've met some, is actually a contradiction in terms. It doesn't make any sense that the whole community is going to be characterized by, by a very compelling and a very attractive lowliness, a humility, a brokenheartedness. I see that in verse 12. But I will leave in your midst on that day a people humble and lowly, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. Humble, lowly, that, that's where we live at Summit. Down low, by faith, in the greatness 
and kindness and benevolence of God. This will be a, friends, a just community on that day. A just community. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 13. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. This community that God is reserving all of those who hide in Him for is going to be a a community obsessed with justice and righteousness and truthfulness. There's, there's going to be, it's going to be a community marked by character and integrity, not perfection, but the, the desire of the heart of this people is going to be for justice. It's going to be for justice among us, and it's going to be for justice in the world. That's what this community is going to be characterized by. That's what we're being hidden for, is to be a part of this community. This is going to be a safe community. Look again at verse 13 for me. They shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. There is going to be something about being in this community, about being this people, hidden in the Lord Jesus Himself, that's going to that's going to provide a kind of a safety and a security that we're just going to be able to be ourselves. We're going to be able to enjoy ourselves. We're going to be able to eat and be nourished and, and satisfy our deepest longings and hungers and thirsts. That's, that's what this people is, are, are going to experience. It's going to be a safe community. I hope Summit Christian Fellowship is a safe community community for you. I hope this is a place where you feel like you don't have to perform, or where you don't have to be on guard, like someone's going to say something that's going to be a weapon. I hope you can let your guard down, and we can just all walk in the light of the blood of Jesus together. That's what I want for Summit Christian Fellowship. Friends, this is going to be a singing community. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Okay, this is why we sing. This community is going to be a singing community. It's a community fascinated with singing. It's a community that can't help but erupt in song. What do you do when you're walking around the house and you're just happy? You're just excited. You're singing. It's what we do as humans when we're excited about something. Now, what is it exactly that we're excited about? Well, it leads us to the next point that we're a forgiven community. It will be a forgiven community. Look at verse 15 with me. We sing aloud. We rejoice because the Lord, verse 15, has taken away the judgments against you and has cleared away your enemies. This is a community that loves the grace of God so much that we sing about it. We can't help but sing. Why do we raise our hands? Christians are so weird sometimes. I raise my hand, and every time I do, if I'm self-conscious, I think, isn't this a weird thing? And then I think, isn't this a wonderfully normal thing? What else would a human do if I'm celebrating? What happens when my favorite team scores a basket? 
right? My hands go up in the air. Christians can't, it, maybe I'm not, I don't want to pressure you into raising your hands. It's not, a, it's not a sterile thing that we do, right? This is, it's just instinctive. You get your hands up in the air if you're excited about the victory that was just won on your behalf. And the judgments that were going to land on you and destroy you have been taken away from you. Enemies that have been brought to you to judge you for things that you deserve to be judged for have been taken away from you. These people are going to sing. They're going to sing because they're forgiven. They're going to sing because they love the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus. This is a holy community. I'm going long, but I'm not stopping without going through these. This is amazing to me. This, friends, is a holy community. Look at 3.15 again. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. I never want to come to church and have this be something that we do in the flesh. I never want to come here and have this church founded on the the dynamism and the personality of Ben or Mike or Craig, or Josh, or myself. We're wasting our time if God doesn't show up here on a Sunday morning by the presence of the risen Christ. Am I wrong? The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. What should it do to you when God is really among us? Emmanuel, in our presence. Look at the second half of verse 15. You shall never again fear evil. This is a courageous community. There is a boldness and a bravery that characterizes this community that's frankly a supernatural thing. It's because an unseen God is actually in our midst. That's why there is a, a marked bravery, a marked courage that epitomizes the people of God, or at least that will. Friends, this is a treasured community. Look at chapter 3, verse 17 with me. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you. Friends, you You are not the only ones singing because of all God has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. The God who saved you, Scripture teaches us, sings over you. He Himself is not a stoic and emotionless God. He rejoices over you like the father of the prodigal son who lifts up his cloak and runs after his son and weeps over him and sings over him. God, you, We think we are singing to God to provide, to kind of cheer him up. No, friends, God sings over his people with unimaginable joy. This is a treasured community. That, who are these people? There are those who are hidden. The, the, these are those who are hidden in the Lord on that day. This is an 
I don't know how else to put this. This is a parented community. It's a parented community. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 17 again. The Lord's in your midst. He's a mighty one to save. He's rejoicing over you. Not, not just, he's not just rejoicing. He's rejoicing over you with gladness, right? It's a fullness of joy that he has over you. He will quiet you by his love. This is a parented community. Some of us in this room uh, identify as Christians but have never experienced all of our anxieties, all of our fears, all of our worries being quieted by the present love of God for us in Christ. We've never experienced that before. As a, as a baby, I mean, we've seen this before, right? In the nursery, there's babies that get cry, they start crying. Dane back there, my one-year-old son, might start crying. And no, none of the, the nursery volunteers can calm him down. And what, what calms Dane down right now is if he's in mommy's arms, if he's in daddy's arms. Dane knows what it's like to be quieted by the love of a mother or a father. Friends, this community of people that are hidden in the Lord, they're going to know in experience what it's like to be quieted by the love of God. Do you know what it's like personally in your experience to be quieted by the love of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in secret? This is a parented community. This is a community, I'm running out of language here, that's sung over, like we just mentioned. He not only, God not only rejoices over this people, but he's singing over them. Sometimes the way I sing on a Saturday morning over my daughter, and it probably bothers her more than blesses her, but God, uh, perfect as he is, sings with an unimaginable joy and exuberance over his people. The, this this Community is a sung over community. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is a gathered community. 3.18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. These are people who their existential sense in life is uh, scattered, chaotic, lost, and the Lord Jesus Christ comes and gathers and finds and collects these people to himself. This is a, friends, a vindicated people. Look at verse 19. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. I will deal with all your oppressors. God's going to protect us. God's going to vindicate his church. We often wring our hands over the, the signs of the times. Things are getting harder and harder in our society, in our context for, for Christians. God's going to vindicate his people. Finally, this is an honored community. This is an honored community. I will change their shame into praise and renown. This is a people who deserve judgment, but who hide themselves in the Lord. And they're not ju- they don't just get inclusion into the community. That God's going to so put them forward that they're going to be honored. They're going to be renowned. They're going, they're going to be given a name. 
like Abraham was promised. This is incredible, friends. Now, the day of the Lord, as we mentioned before, is future, right? The day of God's judgment is future. There's a time fixed in the future where God's going to hold everyone accountable. But the New Testament also teaches that in this respect, in, in the respect of all these blessings, friends, the day of the Lord has crashed into our present and there's a way for us to taste all of this right now in life together. And we get to do that right now as we gather and sing. We get to be this kind of community, at least in some sense, in some foretaste of a sense. So uh, that's all I have to say. That's the book of Zephaniah. What does it mean to be hidden in the Lord on the day of judgment? On the day of the Lord. Well, it means to be hidden from a whole lot of God's judgment for sin. And it means to be hidden for unspeakable and undeserved joy and blessing. I hope you experience that in some measure this morning. Uh, let's bow and at, give God thanks. And then worship team, come on back up and, and let's sing. So Father, thank you for your son. Oh, we love him. Lord, we, we need him. We look to him right now. Father, we ask that you would give us a sense of this end time kind of blessing on your gathered community. Help us to experience these realities right now through the Lord Jesus. Amen.